And um, what we're going to be looking at today is that, so the theme of the day were, were blessings. And um, what we're going to look at is, is the evolution of a particular uh, legend, the evolution of the story of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. And um, one of the major themes of the story is that he is, he is the person who is able to sort of bless God in an appropriate way, even in the midst of, of great catastrophe. Um, and we'll see that as the story itself kind of evolves over time, there are particular details that shift in interesting ways, but kind of a major uh, constant is going to be this idea of being able to sort of bless God no matter what. So the earliest um, earliest appearance of the story of Rabbi Kamina Ben-Tradion is in the Sifrei. The Sifrei is a work of Midrash Halakha on the Book of Devarim. Um, it was offered at some time around the same time period as the Mishnah, around sort of the first or second century CE. Um, and we start off over here. Uh, it's, a, it's a midrash on a pasuk in in, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. The pasuk is Hatsur Tamim Paolo, the rock whose ways are perfect. It's part of Parshat Ha'adinu. It's a little loud. Should I try to close the door? Maybe? the rock whose ways are perfect. God is described as the rock whose ways are perfect. And the Midrash says, another way to understand this verse, that the rock whose ways are perfect, is when they caught or when they captured Rabbi Hanina ben Tredion, thank you for making more comments. Um, so when they caught or when they captured Rabbi Hanina ben Tredion, it was decreed against him that he would be burnt together with his they said to him, it's been decreed against you that you will be burnt with your sacred Torah. He responded by reciting the following verse, Hatsur Tamim Palo, the rock whose ways are perfect. What, what does he mean by reciting that verse? Yeah, God is perfect, right? Even though I've had this terrible judgment decreed against me, I, I don't contest God's judgment. If God has judged it, then it must be perfect judgment. Um, Amrul Ishto. Then they turn to his wife and they say to his wife, Nigzera al been decreed against your husband that he will be burnt to death, and that you will also be killed. She now recites the second half of that verse. The second half of the verse is, El Emunada in Abel. God is faithfulness and has no iniquity. She is also accepting God's judgment. Amrullah Bito, now they turn to his daughter and they say, It's been decreed that your father will be burned, and that your mother will be killed. It's been decreed against you that you will have to do work. She now recites a verse from the book of Jeremiah. The verse is, which means great is counsel and multitudinous is the plot. For your eyes, God, are open to all of the paths of, of people to give each person according to what they deserve. Um, apparently, I've been told that this verse is also recited by many communities when they do, um, uh, when they prepare bodies for burial. This verse is recited also, which is interesting. It's supposed to be a verse, I guess, where you're accepting God's judgment and you say that God judges each person according to what he or she deserves. So the daughter recites this verse as well. Amar Rabi. Rabi, upon hearing the story, says, Look how amazing, look how wonderful these righteous people are. Right? In their time of trouble, right when they discovered the, the horrible fate that was going to befall them, they were able to summon up these three verses of of Tidukadin, of accepting God's judgment. Um, uh, they found basically three verses, the likes of which are not to be found in any of the other writings. Right? They found the three best verses of Tidukadin that you could find, and not only did they find them, but they found them exactly in the moment when they needed them. And Rabbi is very impressed that they have the presence of mind to recite these verses. Um, so the philosopher, now totally unclear who this philosopher is or where, how he's made his way into the story, but we're told now the philosopher stood up on his aparechia. Aparechia is also a Greek term. Usually it seems to mean province, but within the context over here it sounds more like it's like a podium of some sort. So he stands up on his podium to make a declaration, and what he says is, Mari alta He turns to the to the to the Roman ruler who has decreed that. Uh, 
Hanina Ben-Shagun will be killed. And he says, don't be, don't be so arrogant, thinking that you have burnt the Torah. Because you haven't really, by burning the Torah, you haven't destroyed the Torah. She's just gone back to her father's house, right? You, by burning the Torah, you haven't, you haven't really triumphed over it. She's just returned back to where she came from. Amarlo, so the ruler is very displeased to hear the philosopher say this. So the ruler says, The ruler says, tomorrow your fate will be just like the fate of Hanina ben Tradion, um and, and his family. Meaning, tomorrow you will die. Amarlo, uh, so the philosopher now says back to the ruler, You, in fact, have given me good tidings. Because if you say that tomorrow my fate will be like theirs, that means that tomorrow I will, um, I will also have a portion in the world to come. I will have a portion just like theirs in the world to come. Um, okay, so a couple of things about the story I think are, are worth noting. One is that um, there are many things that are unclear in the story. Right? The story doesn't tell us at all what Hanina ben Tradion and his wife and daughter did, such that this is the, the fate that's decreed upon them. Right? We're not told. We're not heard, We're not told what what charges are being levied against them. Right? We have no idea. Um, and I think the reason why the story doesn't tell us is that the point is that the charges are irrelevant. The point is, no matter what the reason is, they are willing to accept their fate. Right? So all we're told about is they. They're terrible decrees and they're willing to accept the fate. Um, so, yeah, in all the stories, it seems as if, as if he was burnt to death. Yeah. Um, you, but, but you're right, over here, it, the, the story doesn't even actually tell us about the moment of his being burnt, but we get the sense that, that because the philosopher says, uh, you haven't triumphed over the Torah by burning it, the sense is that the Torah is being burnt and Hanina ben Tredion is being burnt. And when the ruler says, your fate will be like theirs, it seems clear that now they've, they've been killed and the next day the philosopher will, will be killed as well. But, but it's interesting, right, that that isn't sort of specifically described, right? You sort of have to infer from the story that the events have, have played out that way. Yeah, the problem I have here is it's the ruler who's making the decree. It's not God. So they're saying that whatever God says, is proper, like God put these words into the ruler's head. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that is a really great point, right? Because it's one thing to say that God's justice is, is true, but here, it's, you know, it's the ruler who's decreed it. In this particular version of the story, it seems as if what Rabbi Hanina ben Tredion is saying is that if this is to be my fate, it must have come from God, and God's judgment is true. But we'll see that in a later version, in the Babylonian Talmud version of the story, they're going to ask both questions. They're going to say, you know, what, why is the ruler trying? Why does the ruler want to kill him? And why does why does God want to kill him? But in this particular story, I think the sense is anything that happens in the world happens because God has decreed it. And so, if this is to be His state, He accepts God's justice. God's justice. Joyousness that uh, the justice of all this. Mm-hmm. With me, I'd say God is schooling us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, are you going to be addressing that? Hopefully? Yes, yeah, we're going to see that in the course of it. But I think I think one thing to realize is that this story is being very deliberately told to make the point that these are three people who are willing to accept God's God's justice, right? Whether or not that makes sense of the story, it's a very interesting question. But I think the point for this story is because the story doesn't even tell us. Why? It doesn't tell us anything about what they've done or why they're being killed. All we know is that they're told that they'll be killed and they immediately not only accept God's justice, but they do it by reciting a verse. So I just want to say, but the things that are unclear, right? First of all, we, have, we don't know what they did. Another thing that's unclear is the daughter is told that she's supposed to do work. It's not really clear what, what kind of work that is. Um, the philosopher shows up out of nowhere, right? How does he come to be in the story, right? Totally unclear. Yeah, exactly, right? Totally unclear kind of what the philosopher is doing there in the moment. Um, and another thing that, that um, just for the purposes of kind of tracing how the story develops, I think it's interesting to notice that it's not totally clear how the Torah is being burned with Hanina ben Tredion, right? We're just told that the decree is that he will be burned with his sacred Torah. And it doesn't, it's not clear whether that means that sort of simultaneously at the same time they're going to burn the Torah and they're going to burn him, or if it means somehow that they're going to burn them together. Um, and I'm just pointing that out because you see as the story develops, that becomes sort of more and more clear over time. Yeah. It reminds me of the Red Sea when it pours a body uh-huh. and all after the houses that can breathe uh-huh. and all of a sudden see the body. Okay, and how is it similar? It, it's similar to the story of the Red Sea. Yeah. When it parted, I mean, Israelis were going uh-huh. to throw. Meaning because it requires absolute faith. 
absolute faith, but otherwise the water wouldn't yeah. apply. Yeah, yeah. All the way up to up to here, they couldn't mm-hmm. breathe. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point, right? I think I think this story also is, is meant to sort of show their their absolute faith. And I, I guess the two things that so, so the lots of as I was saying, lots of things are unclear about the story. Two things that I would say are clear. One is that is that the point of this midrash is to tell us that these people were willing to accept God's judgment. Um, and the other thing to sort of take away from it is that. I think the, the point of the philosopher being there is that the third party who witnesses what's going on, instead of being repelled by this notion of martyrdom, this notion of a person willing to accept God's faith no matter what, the third party is attracted to it, right? The philosopher wants to be like Hanina ben Tradion. He's pleased to find out that he is going to die a death like Hanina ben Tradion, which is an interesting thing, right? Because you might have thought that in a case where somebody was dying this horrible death, everybody would say, I don't want to have anything to do with these people. I want to stay as far away from them as possible, right? You might, as you said, the philosopher might have just wanted to keep his mouth closed and you know get away from the scene. But the sense is that there's something about about the way that Hanina ben Tradion and his family accept God's judgment that is somehow compelling for this other person who's not really connected to them at all. He's just a philosopher, but somehow he sees what's going on and he would like to share their faith, which is interesting, right? It's interesting to sort of pay attention to. Okay, but let's, let's see the next source. The next source over here is from Masechet Smachot. Masechet Smachot is one of the minor tractates of the Talmud. Um, its final editing was probably around the 8th century, but it, it contains kind of types <coughs> of material that are a lot earlier. And um, I'm going to argue based on, on some of the details here, I think that this particular story strikes me as being an earlier bit of material that's embedded within this later compilation. So in this, in this sort of second version of the story, we're told, When Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion was, was caught or captured for sectarianism. Now, this is already very interesting, right? In the first source, we had no idea why Hanina ben Tradion was being arrested, right? Here we're given a reason, right? He was arrested for being a sectarian, for somehow holding um, uh, unsavory views, right? Um, and it's not clear whether he really did hold these views or whether this is sort of the trumped-up charge that the Romans have against him. But we're told that he's arrested for mute. Gazru allowed this They decree that he will be burnt. They decree that his wife will be killed. And they decree that his daughter will have to go and um, work in a brothel. Right? So now we also, another thing that gets cleared up in this version is what sort of work the daughter has to do. In the first version, right, in the Supreme, we were just told she was supposed to do work. In this version, we're told what sort of work it is. Right? She has to work as a prostitute. So now, Hanina ben Tradion says to them, what was decreed against that poor woman, namely his wife, right? What, what, what is to be her fate? They say, oh, it's been decreed that she will be killed. So he now recites the following verses about her. He says, God is righteous in all ways and pious in all of God's doings. The rock whose ways are perfect, um, all of his ways are just. Um, God is faithfulness and has no iniquity, right? So basically, he basically recites sort of one verse from Psalm, Sadiq Hashem Bechol and then uh, both halves of that verse from Deuteronomy that we saw in the first in the first text. Um, and he recites them all about his wife. Amralahem, so now the wife asks the officials, Rabbi, what, what was decreed against that rabbi, against my husband? They said it was decreed that he would be burnt. She now recites that verse from Jeremiah that her daughter had recited in the in the uh, in the first text. When they uh, when they came to burn Rabbi Chinnah ben Tradion, they wrapped him in a sefer Torah. The sefer Torah imo, and they burnt him and they burnt his sefer Torah along. And his daughter was crying out and, and prostrating herself before him. And she said, Is this the Torah? Is this the reward for Torah? How is it that you were here such, such an important Torah scholar? How could you be dying in a horrible way? So he says to her, My daughter, if you are crying about me and if you are prostrating yourself on my account, it's better that I be consumed by a fire that was fanned by human hands and not by a fire that was fanned by non-human hands. 
as we know from the verse in Eos, right, uh, one of Eos' friends, Sofa Hanamas, he comes and describes to the describes to Job basically the punishments of the wicked and one of the things that he describes about the punishments of the wicked is that they are to be burnt by flames that were not fanned by human hands right the sense is that they're going to be burnt by the fires of hell um, so Rabbi Chaim of says to his daughter look if you're crying about me it's better for me to be burnt in this world by you know human ignited flames than to be burnt after death in, in you know, the fires of, of the afterworld the email Sefer Torah Bukha, and if you're crying about the Sefer Torah that's being burnt, Hare is that Torah Esh, the Ein Esh If you're crying about the Torah, don't worry, because the Torah itself is fire, and fire cannot consume fire. Hare Hinaktuvin Pochim Bavir, the writings of the Torah are flying up in the air, the Ein Esh Ochalet Elahaor Bilbad, and the fire is only consuming the parchment. The words themselves are, are flying up. Okay, so this is the second thing. A couple of things are, are really interesting to note about it, right? One is that, um, as I was saying before, a reason is given for his being captured, right? He's arrested on charges of sectarianism. We're told uh, what the daughter, um, you know, what, what kind of work the daughter will have to do. But some other things that are kind of interesting is that uh, one thing you notice is the daughter doesn't get a verse here, right? Questions in fact. Exactly, right? She doesn't get a verse of justifying. It makes sense that she doesn't because she, in fact, is about to question the judgment. Um, you notice the philosopher drops out of the story entirely, right? There's no philosopher any longer commenting on the events. But instead, we have the daughter who's commenting on the events. And what the daughter does is basically question the justice there. And, um, and Rabbi Sinan Ben Tradun responds in this interesting way, right? He seems to be saying, look, you know, if it's just about me, don't worry, this, uh, you know, this is better for me. And that, that makes me wonder if maybe he does feel that he's been guilty of something, right? Why is he worrying about being burned by the flames of the afterlife, right? Maybe, maybe the sectarian charge really did have some sort of basis to it. Um, uh, not so clear from the story. Um, but at any rate, the, the point, though, that he makes to the daughter is similar to the point that the philosopher himself made in the first story, right? Which is that burning the Torah doesn't destroy the Torah. Remember, the philosopher said burning the Torah doesn't destroy the Torah. She's just gone back to her father's house. And here, the idea is that burning the Torah only destroys sort of the physical parchment, but the content of the Torah flies upward. And so, therefore, the Torah is not, is not in danger from the burning it lives on. Um, Okay, this is the second version. Uh, oh, sorry, and the one other thing I wanted to point out about the second version, in terms of the way that the Torah is burnt, here, uh, this version is more explicit, right? We're told that they wrap him, right? They wrap him up in the Torah scroll, and they burn the Torah scroll along with him, which is just a little bit more explicit, right? On the first version, we just knew that they were being burned at the same time. We didn't know if they were being burned actually physically together. But here, we're told that they wrap him in the Torah scroll, and, and then they burn him. Okay. The third version of the story appears in Tractate Kala. This is also one of the, the minor tractates, also thought of and edited around the 8th century, but has these earlier chunks. My sense is that this version of the story is slightly later than version number 2, but still earlier than the 4th version, which is the one from the Babylonian Talmud. I'll show you why as we, we go through it. Um, the other thing I would say about this version is that this is my favorite one. Um, I think it's great. Okay, we're told now in this in this third version over here. It was said about Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, Apparently Hanina ben Tradion was the gabai in his community and he would collect uh, alms for the poor. And one time he confused his Purim money with his regular charity money. He was sitting and wondering. And he said, he said to himself, Woe to me, perhaps I am liable for the death for death at the hands of heaven for my confusion of these two batches of money. As he was sitting there and wondering whether he was liable for death at the hands of heaven, Ba Kastiner, an executioner came to him and said, Rabbi, he said, Rabbi, it's been decreed against you that uh, you will be wrapped in your Torah scroll and you will be burnt along with your Torah scroll. The Amad and immediately the executioner uh, wraps Rabbi bin Tradion in his Torah scroll. Now we have a new detail, right? After he wraps him in the Torah scroll, he ties some vines around him. Now, why would he do that? Well, 
I think they keep the Torah on them, right? Otherwise, how does the Torah stay up, right? If they just wrap it around him, it might fall down. So it's almost like a belt, right? They, they wrap the Torah around him, and then they tie these vines. The executioner ties these vines to hold it in place, which I think is interesting because it just means that there's another detail that's accruing to this image that we have of how, how you know, exactly sort of what things look like. So now the Torah scroll is wrapped around him. They wrap these vines around the Torah scroll. But he sees Bohavor, and the executioner lights the fire, but the fire kept sort of sputtering and going out. The executioner was very surprised. Things don't usually work out this way. He said, Rabbi, are you sure that you're the one that I'm supposed to be burning? So Hanina ben Tradion says, yes, no, it's me, Hanina ben Tradion. I am the one who you are supposed to be burning. So the executioner says to him, well, if you're the one that I'm supposed to be burning, why does the fire keep going out, right? But what's going on? Why is this fire happening this way? Um, so Hanina ben Tradion explains to him. He says, He said, the reason why the fire is going out is that I swore by my maker that uh, that nothing would harm me until I find out whether this is really a decree of heaven or not, which kind of gets back to your question, right? This story now makes it clear that it's possible that there could be a decree of the government that isn't the decree of heaven. So, right, Hanina ben Tradion said, I swore that nothing would harm me until I found out whether this was really decreed by heaven against me or not. So, so give me an hour. I'll find out and I'll let you know. Right? Now, think about how crazy this is, right? The executioner has come to kill him, has wrapped him in the Torah scroll, has tied the vines around him, has tried to burn him, but nothing is working out, and Hanina ben Tredion says, you need to give me a little more time, I need to find out exactly whether this was the decree of heaven or not, and, you know, come back in an hour and I'll tell you. So now, remember originally it was Hanina uh, ben Tredion who was sitting and wondering, but now the Castaner, the executioner, is sitting and wondering, and he says, he says, if these people are so powerful that they can decide on their own if they're going to live or die, right? He takes this vow that nothing will happen to him and I can't even light a fire next to him. If these people are so powerful, um, how can the government have any sort of authority over them, right? How is that possible if they're so powerful on their own? So, excuse goes back to Hanina ben Tradion, and he says to him, Kum lech, get up and go, you're free to go. And whatever the government does to me for letting them, for letting you go, let them do it. But I, I'm not going to kill you, you should just go free. Now, what would be the right thing for Hanina ben Tradion to do at this point? What would you think? Yeah, they, they want you to get out of there, right? Hold them that, hold them that he, you know, he's free to go. Yeah. Okay, but instead of doing that, Hanina ben Tradion begins to uh, insult the executioner. He says, Rika, you empty-headed one. I've discovered that, in fact, this really was the decree from heaven that I die. And if you don't kill me, God has many other forces that can put me to death. God has a lot of bears. Um... Nimrim uh, are tigers, the um, Arayot, lions, the Evim, wolves, many uh, snakes and scorpions, be all of all of which can kill me. Right? Basically, it doesn't really matter to me whether or not you kill me. You're not doing me any favors. Once I've discovered that God has decreed that I am to die, I'm going to die one way or the other. So I don't really care. So you know, I'm not going to. You're not helping me at all by not killing. Um, the only difference is, is that if you kill me, in the end, God will sort of request my blood back from you, right? God will sort of blame you for killing me. But from my perspective, I'm going to die one way or the other. It doesn't really matter to me. So you're not, you're not really helping me at all. I'm not going to run away. Okay, now the story gets very bizarre. So, right, the executioner realizes that what Hanina ben Tradion is saying is true. And presumably still goes through with him and, and kills him, right? Lights the fire and kills him. But we're told once he does that, miyad kafatz v'nafal But then the executioner jumps into the fire as well. V'hishmiya kolom And we, we hear the executioner's voice calling out from the fire and saying, ba'asher tamuti amut. 
Where you die, I will die. Bisham ekaber, and there I will be buried. Whose language is that? Ruth, right? This is what Ruth says to Naomi, right? When she refuses to leave her, as, as Naomi is going back to Beit Lechem. Ruth says to you, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you sleep, I will sleep, right? And she concludes by saying, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And now the executioner is saying this to Hanina ben Trevion, except he adds in an extra clause. He says, Ba'asher techaya achaya. And wherever you are brought to life again, I will be brought to life again as well. Immediately now a voice comes out from heaven and says, and his executioner are both invited now into the world to come. Right? Because because of his action. Now, okay. A couple of things are interesting to sort of notice about the story's evolution, right? First of all, the wife and the daughter have now dropped out of the story, right? They don't appear here at all. We don't hear anything about the wife. Um being put to death, we don't hear anything about the daughter being consigned to a brothel. Um, we also don't have any verses, right? He doesn't recite any verses to justify his fate, but he still is justifying his fate, right? He says, I'm going to find out if this, is, if, this is, if this is the decree of heaven, then I will accept it upon myself so fully that even given the choice to escape, I'm not going to, right? I, if this, once I realize this is God's judgment, I will fully accept it upon myself. Um, another thing that sort of carries over from the other stories is the, is the idea of him being burnt with his sacred Torah. But, um, but one of the things that makes me think that this is the third in the line of the stories is that the details keep accruing. Right? First we're told that he's burnt and his sacred Torah is burnt. In the second story we were told he's wrapped in his sacred Torah and being burnt. Here we're told he's wrapped in the sacred Torah and the vines are tied around him and, and, then, and then he has to be burnt. Um, another sort of interesting move to notice is that the philosopher in the first story has now been replaced by the executioner. Right? Both of them are these sort of third parties who look on at what's going on. And instead of being kind of repelled by it, they kind of want to join the Right? Both of them want to share his fate. Um, I think in this version, the, the execution makes a little bit more sense, though, right? Because it makes sense why he would be there. The philosopher was kind of random, right? It was totally unclear what the philosopher was doing there at the scene. Remember, he just sort of appeared in that first source out of nowhere. The executioner is kind of there because he's the agent of the death. Um, and I think there's something very striking about the executioner being so compelled by, by this vision of, of this martyrdom or by Senator Ventredion's willingness to be killed that he, uh, he would like to join him as well. Okay, so well, the last version that we're going to see is, is probably the most famous one. This is the version that appears in the Babylonian Talmud. Right now, the Babylonian Talmud talk has been edited sometime around the year 500 or 600. But, um, but as I was saying, I think that this is the sort of the latest version of this story for uh, a couple of reasons that will become clear as we look at it. Um, okay, uh, this story... Um, there are a lot of congregations that on Yom Kippur recite a piyut about the ten martyrs. Uh, one of them being Hanina ben Tradion, and the version that appears in that pew is the version that, um, that the, the Babylonian Talmud has. Um, also, there are some communities that recite um, a keynote about the Eila Eskaraz, one of the, you know, that's the one on Yom But there's a kina on Tisha B'Av also about uh, the death of the martyrs, and also this version of the story appears there as well. So, okay, so, but over, over here, the story appears in Tractate of Odazah. We're told, this is the Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. Uh, they brought up Rabbi Hanina ben Shadion on charges, and they say to him, Amai ka'asakta ve'oraita. Why did you learn Torah? Amar lehu ka'asher tzivani Hashem alokai. He said, I did it because that is what God has commanded me to do. That's why I learned Torah. Miyad gazru alav v'srifa. Immediately they decreed that he would be burnt. Ma'alishto l'hariga. And that his, uh, his wife would be killed. Ba'albito l'shev v'kubash al his daughter would have to go and work in a brothel. Now, right from the start, you'll notice that some things are interesting. We're told why why do they why do the Romans want to kill Hanina ben Tredion? Because he's learning Torah, right? They have banned the study of Torah, and he has continued to learn Torah, and that is why they want to kill him, which is a very noble, right, for the eyes of the Bible, very noble, noble reason. Um, but also, and, and the same the same sort of uh, kind of three-part punishment is here, right? He is supposed to be burnt, his wife is supposed to be um, killed, and his daughter has to sit in a, in go and work in a brothel, right? That was what we saw in the second version of the story, which explained the, the work aspect of the story. Right? Um, another thing that's interesting is that this is the first time that it makes sense that the Torah is being burnt along with him, right? If, if his mistake was confusing the poor money, it's not really not clear why they're burning the Torah with him. And if his, if his crime is sectarianism, it's also not clear why they're burning the Torah with him. But in the Bavli, right, the Bavli sort of takes the idea that the Torah is being burnt with him and says, well, you know, perhaps that's because 
you know, his crime had something to do with, with the Torah, right? So once, once his crime against the Romans is learning Torah, it kind of makes sense that the Torah is going to be perfect with him. Uh, okay, so now, though, the Bavli is going to be interested not only in what the, why the Romans want to kill him, but they're also going to, the Bavli is also going to be interested in why does God allow him to die, right? What has he really done wrong, such that he's now dying, right? And there's a sense that, that two things have to go on simultaneously, right? The Romans have a reason to want to kill him, but that's not enough of a reason for God to want him to die, right? And if he's really done nothing wrong, then why is he being punished in this way? So... Having explained that the Romans are going to kill him because uh, because he's continued to study Torah, in the next line, the, the Babylonian Talmud says, Allah district, uh, why is it that he was supposed to be burnt? Because he would pronounce God's name with all of its letters in a way that was inappropriate. Uh, the Gemara then goes on and says, wait, how could he have done that? Did he know he wasn't supposed to? Well, he did it in order to teach people, but it was still inappropriate. It's a whole sort of uh, discussion there that, that I, I uh, edited out just for the interest of time over here. But basically, he is being put to death because he pronounced God's name with all his letters. And uh, his wife, why is his wife killed? Because she did not prevent him from pronouncing God's name with all all of his letters. From here it was taught, From here we learned that any time a person has it within their power to prevent someone else from committing a sin and does not prevent them, they too are going to be punished for that sin. The Albitole shaved the Kubash al and his daughter is punished by having to go and work in a brothel. The Amar Rabbi Yochanan, why, why was she given this punishment? Because as Rabbi Yochanan taught, one time, Khadida ben Shadion's daughter was walking uh, before the, the Roman nobles. They said, how delightful are the footsteps of this young, young woman. And immediately she was even more careful with how she walked. And... I don't know, I find this very disturbing, but the idea being that, you know, because she was sort of walking in this alluring way deliberately in front of the Roman nobles, in the end, this is to be her fate. I don't really know what to say about that. At any rate, Bisha'ashi and Sushlushan, at the time that the three of them are brought out to meet their fates, said, Kualeyam et right? All three of them accept God's judgment upon themselves. Kuamar, he says, Hatsur Tamim Paolo. He recites the first half of that verse from Deuteronomy, uh, the rock whose ways are perfect. Bishtonra and his wife, just like in the Sifre, recites the second half of that same verse, El Emunave in Abel. God is faithfulness and has no uh, iniquity. Bitoamra, um, his daughter, now she gets her verse back again, when she gets her verse from Yermiyahu. Right? Uh, great, um, great is the counsel and, and so forth, because God's eyes are uh, looking at, at everybody to give everybody what they deserve. So each one of them now recites exactly the verses that they recited back in our first text. Amar Rabbi, come up doing sadikim halalu. Rabbi said, look how great these righteous ones are. Because they were able to summon up three verses of accepting God's fate at the time that they needed to, at the time where God's fate was being decreed against them. Right? Which is pretty similar to what Rabbi says in the, in the first verse as well. When Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma became ill, Rabbi Hanina ben Tredion went to visit him. Now we're sort of, the story kind of is chronological, right? It's going back in time, right? Before he, when Hanina ben Tredion was still alive, he went to visit Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, who had fallen ill. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma said to him, Hanina achi, my brother Achina, my brother Hanina rather, do you not know that this nation, this Roman nation, was um, was uh, uh, given its power by heaven? She, how do we know this? Because look what the Romans have done. They destroyed God's, God's house, the Sarfad Hechalo, and they burnt God's temple. The Hardat Chasidah, they killed all of God's pious ones. They destroyed all of God's good ones. And yet, the Roman Empire is still here. So clearly... God must have wanted them to do these things. Otherwise, how, how would they have been able to do them? So clearly God intends for the Romans to be in power. But, 
ומכיר קהילות ברבים, וספר מונח לך בחלקך. Even though the Romans have clearly been given their power by God, I hear that you are publicly violating their laws. Right? The Romans have said that you can't learn Torah, and here you are gathering large groups of people and teaching them Torah with the Torah on your left. Right? You can't be more flagrant in your violation of their rules than this. And how are you doing this? Don't you know that at least for now they're the ones in charge? So Hanina Ben Chadion responds by saying, Mina Shemayim Yirachamu, Heaven will have mercy. Which is not really a good response, right? It's not really responding to this. And sure enough, Rabbi Yossi Ben Kisma gets kind of angry at him and says, Ani Omer Lecha Dvarim Shulcham, I am giving you good sound advice. I am telling you things that make sense. Ba'ata Omer Li Mina Shemayim Yirachamu, and the only thing you can say back to me is, Heaven will have mercy. Um... I would be surprised if they don't burn you and your Torah in the fire, right? So we already have this premonition that, in fact, this is to be coming to Ben Tredion's face. So, Queen Ben Tredion doesn't argue back to Rabbi Yosemite's so instead he says to him, Rabbi, what do you think my chances are at getting a portion in the world to come? So Yossi Ben Kisma says, well, did anything unusual happen lately that might give us an indication of what your status is? He says, well, I actually, I, I accidentally confused my poor money with my charity money, and so I gave it all out to the poor people. Uh, so Yossi Ben Kisma says, if, if that is really what you did, then you know, may my portion be like your portion, and may my fate be as your fate. Um, which is very interesting, right? Because in, in the third version of the story that we saw in source number three, the mixing up of the Purim money and the charity money was a very bad thing, right? That's the thing that got him killed. Whereas here, suddenly now, it's seen as actually a sign of his great piety, right? That even though he confused his own personal Purim money with the charity money, he gave it, then he just gave out the whole pot of money to the poor. And Yossi Ben Kisma says, this not only guarantees your place in the world to come, but I, I wish that I could have your faith. Right? Which is interesting that you have that same sort of story, but I think the Bavli was kind of uncomfortable with the idea that that story could lead to death, right? Because it's really unclear why mixing up money would lead to death. Um, so instead, they sort of recast it as a, as a story that uh, tells us something very positive about Khamenei Ben It said that not many days passed before Abiyosi Ben Kisma uh, uh, passed away. He never he was very sick. That was why Khamenei Ben Tadiyam was visiting him. Um, and all of the great nobles of Rome went to bury him. Which is not surprising, right, given that his theory was that Rome was appointed by heaven, right? So it's not surprising that the Roman uh, nobility wanted, uh, wanted to sort of make a big deal out of his funeral and so forth. They must have left him lot. But on their way back from the funeral, on their way back, they find Hanina ben Trajon, who is sitting and teaching Torah publicly with a Sefer Torah on his lap. So now they bring him, they wrap him in the Sefer Torah, they tie these vines around the Torah to hold it in place, or they light, light it on fire, and then they bring these uh, clumps of wool, they soak the wool in water, they then place the, the wool on his, on his heart, that he, uh, he won't die too quickly. They want to prolong the agony. So the, the wool, I would say, is sort of the fourth addition to the image. Right? In the beginning, we just knew that he was being burnt at the same time as his Torah. In the second version, we were told that he's actually being wrapped in the Torah. Third version, he's being wrapped in the Torah and vines are tied around him. And now we have sort of the last detail gets put into place. He's burnt at the same time as the Torah. The Torah is wrapped around him. The vines are tied into place. And they put this wet wool on his heart to sort of keep him alive longer. Um, so his daughter now says to him, Father, must I see you in this way? Must I see you suffering so much? He responds to her and he says, Were I to be burnt alone, then the matter would be very difficult for me. He responds to her and he says, Look, if I alone was being killed, then... 
I would take this I would take this matter very this would be very hard for me. But given that I am being burnt along with my Sefer Torah, whoever will avenge the Sefer Torah will also avenge me. Right? He basically says, you know, God will avenge the Sefer Torah and will also avenge me and it makes me feel better. Now suddenly we have the appearance of a whole new class of people, right? The students are there, right? Remember, there have been no students up until now, right? There's, there's been a philosopher, his daughter asked him a question in the second version, there was an executioner in the third version. But now suddenly we discover that in this version there are a whole bunch of students who are, who are uh, witnessing this event. And they say to him, Rabbi Ma'ataroa, they say, Rabbi, what do you see? He said, I see the parchment burning, but the letters flying up, right? Which is the answer that he gives his daughter in the second version, right? Um, I actually think it's very significant that the students are here. Um, I would say that in general, uh, when you look at these different versions of, uh, there's a bunch of these stories of rabbis dying uh, that are told in the Babylonian Talmud that kind of appear in earlier forms and earlier texts. And, um, and the Babli consistently adds students into them, because I think there's a sense that if somebody has something important to say, the students need to be there to hear it, right? Otherwise, what would the point be, right? So Bobby will always insert students into kind of moments like this where something important could be learned. So his students are there. They say to him, Ravi, what do you see? He says, I see the parchment burning, but the letters floating up. They say to him, They say to him, open your mouth. Let the fire go in through your mouth, or I guess maybe the smoke go in through your mouth, and that way you can die more quickly. You won't suffer so much. He says, it's better for the person who gave me my soul to take it away for me than for me to damage myself. He doesn't want to hasten his own death. Amarlo Kalitsoneri, so now the executioner, right? He makes an appearance in the story. He says, Rabbi, Imanimar Bebishahabit, the Notel Spugin Shotemer Me Ali Kha, Atamidi Inir Hayeha Ulamaba. He says, Rabbi, if I uh, increase the fire and I take the wool off your heart, will you bring me into the world to come? Right? Will you will you uh, will you bring me with you into the world to come? And Hanina ben Tradion says, hey, yes, I will. He shavali, swear to me that you will do this. Mishvalo, Hanina ben Tradion swears to the executioner. Miyad, here Baba shall have it. So the executioner immediately fans the fires hotter. He removes the wet wool from Hanina ben Tradion's heart. Right? And, and immediately Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion then dies. The executioner then jumps into the fire as well. Right, where did we see that before? Right, in the third version. Remember the one with the poor bunnies right there? The executioner jumped into the fire. He jumps in as well. Uh, but he doesn't actually, we don't hear the language or root coming from his mouth, which is disappointing because I, I really like that part. But, um, but at this point, he jumps into the fire, and a voice comes down from heaven and says, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, the Khalid Stoneri, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion and the executioner are invited into the world to come. Bacha Rabbi Vamar, Rabbi then cries out when he hears this and he says, Yish kone olamo b'sha'achat, v'yish kone olamo b'kamashanim. There are some people who uh, acquire the world to come in just one instant, and other people have to work for it, you know, for many years, right? So he says, look at this executioner, in one moment he manages to get, you know, this portion of the world to come for you. Um, okay, so a couple of things I think are, are sort of interesting to, to sort of notice about this story. One is that the original things that were left unclear in the Sifrei have totally been, the, the Babylonian Talmud struggles to clear all of them up, right? We're told not only what does, not only why do the Romans want to kill Hanina ben Tradion, we're also told why does God want him to be dead, right? What has he done that God thinks is problematic, which the God also uh, is, is giving him his punishment? We're told what the daughter, um, you know, what the, you remember, it was unclear what kind of work the daughter had to do here, it's made clear. Um, the philosopher seemed kind of random in that first story, it was unclear kind of how he fit into the to the sequence of events, but over here, instead of being the philosopher, it's the executioner who kind of makes more sense in terms of uh, why he would be there. Um, I would say the key elements of the first story are still here, right? In, in, in all of them, or certainly in the first, second, and third, they, uh, they, the, the people who are to be, who are given the bad decree accept the decree by reciting verses. Um, in all of them, the Torah is burnt. Um, and, um, and, um, what else was I going to say? I guess, <laughs> I guess the, 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 some of the some of the uh, some of the differences, though, that I think are very interesting here. One is that 
um, the Bavli kind of wants to supply those two reasons, right? Both not only why, you know, why are the Romans wanting to kill him, but also, you know, what, what has he done well? Um, and I think sort of the most significant addition to the Bavli version is uh, is the um, is uh, is the fact, first of all, that we're told that it's all about the study of Torah, right? The thing that he's done wrong is he he insisted on teaching Torah when he wasn't supposed to, and therefore he's being punished in this way. Um, and also that the students are there to learn the lesson from that, right? And so I was saying before, in the Babylonian Talmud, there's always a desire to kind of present the students in a moment when something important can be can be learned. And so it's not surprising that um, out of these four different versions of the story, the only one that has students there to learn from it would be the Babylonian Talmud, which has a sort of consistently wants to, uh, to insert the student. Um, okay, maybe we'll stop here if it is 4.50. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm confused about the executioner. I understand he could, let's say, earn the world to come by removing the wall. To, right. But why does he earn the world to come by jumping into the fire. This is, I oh. mean, he, so that's interesting. why is he martyring himself? I understand, say, you know, helping uh, Rabbi Hanani. Yeah, um, so it, it's a really good point, right? And it doesn't seem like he needs to martyr himself, right? Because Hanina ben Tredion has already promised him that yes. if he just helps him die faster, yeah. he'll get the world to come. I think probably the reason why he jumps in, I mean, I would, I would answer it in two ways. One is that because he's the same character who's been sort of evolving from the philosopher in the beginning and the executioner in the third story, right? I think there's a sense that a key element of the story is that a third party who watches what's going on wants to share the same fate. Whether it's the philosopher who sort of gets himself in trouble by you know, saying you haven't triumphed over the Torah and therefore is going to be killed by the by the same ruler or whether it's the executioner and the other two stories who jumps into the fire. I think the sense is that like the third party so thoroughly identifies with Khanita Ben Tradion's martyrdom that he wants to share the fate. Um, to me it's suicide. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, it's true. He may think he's being punished he may think he's going to get the death sentence for helping him uh, suffer less. Anyway. Right, it's po- right, possible he's, already he's going to die anyway, and so he jumped in it as well. But I think from the, I think, I think sort of from the, like, the, the visceral perspective, the sense is that, like, you might worry that if a person is willing to die, that that would be something that would be very off-putting to the others. And I think that for the story, it's important to say that, no, there's something kind of compelling about this martyrdom that draws in this third party who watches it. Um, a lot of stuff has actually been written recently about uh, sort of comparing um, the uh, rabbinic tales of martyrdom with early Christian tales of martyrdom, and I think a key element in both of them is the sense that there's something sort of compelling about martyrdom. It's something that kind of serves as, as a, almost like a in, uh, an incentive for other people, which is weird, right? Normally you would think that everybody would want to avoid that, but I think in the way these stories are framed, they're framed as somehow being compelling. People see them and they kind of want to be like this person who's willing to do this. Yeah. Sounds like a tinge of Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying good or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it just seems to be well, I think I mean I think that we certainly today are very deeply suspicious of martyrdom. Right? What does it mean to like be willing to to die, right? Um, and one thing that's interesting to notice is that in none of these stories is anybody willing to kill somebody else, right? It's more about I mean the executioner gets it's kind of his job in that third story, but 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 he's not killing him because he thinks that you know that that, that will somehow help him out. They kill him, right? He just you know I think in all other cases, people, right? Uh, many other people, right? But not because he thinks that that's his religious duty to do that, right? It seems like his job is to be the executioner, but then there's something about Hanina Ben Tradion that kind of makes him want to kind of end this line of work. Quite to the contrary, it's the relief of suffering. Well, in the the last story, right? In the last story, it's about he wants to make it better for Hanina Ben Tradion. Also interesting to me that he insists that Hanina Ben Tradion swear to him, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. somehow in this moment, Hanina Ben Tradion might lie to him, so therefore he insists on this oath before before he's willing to help him die. In the third story, we get rather in the end, God will exact retribution for my blood from your hands, mm-hmm. um, which Rabbi Panina is telling the executioner, and the executioner knew that it was so. And I think, I guess I'm, I'm just a bit confused by 
that sentence is a retribution if the executioner doesn't kill him? No, no, I think it's if he does. Remember, because what, what it's part of this whole thing of it. Remember, the executioner says, you're free to go. Khanina ben Fredion says, you foolish one, right? You're not helping me out by telling you that I'm free to go. Once God has decided to kill me, I'm going to die one way or the other, either at your hand or at the hand of a bear or a lion or a scorpion and so forth, right? The only difference in whether or not you kill me is not to me, it's only to you. Because if you kill me, you'll be responsible for my death. Whereas, you know, if you don't, then you won't be. But either way, I'm going to die, so you're not doing me any favors. And that's where the story gets very bizarre, right? Because then we're told the executioner realizes that, that that's true, but it seems like somehow he kills him anyway, right? He's yeah. not too sure why that would be, but then he jumps into the fire afterwards and mm-hmm. gets his way into the world of the It's a little strange, and I think that's why the Bavli clears that up, right? The Bavli clears it up that, you know, it's not that um, it's not that he was going to let Khanina ben Tredion go, it's that instead he makes it easier for him to die, right? He's a, he kind of controls the things that he's able to control, which is making the fire hotter. Um, I think that's one of the things that often happens as stories evolve. Things that are sort of unclear or don't make sense in the plot get clarified by the next version, right? Because the person who's retelling the story says, well, exactly what you just said, right? Which is, that, that doesn't make so much sense. Like, why would it to do that? And so there's an attempt to kind of um, smooth it out. Which is why another kind of principle, generally, when you're studying texts, if you're not sure kind of what the chronology is, usually the ones that make less sense are the earlier ones. And actually, probably the more authentic ones also. Because the, the thinking is that any person who's sort of retelling the story or any scribe that's sort of copying over a manuscript will generally want to make it make more sense as opposed to less sense. And so, therefore, they'll you know, try to smooth away some of the things that seem irregular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm still not kind of at the end of all of this. Why Rabbi Hanina thought God wanted him to die? So uh, that's a good question, right? And I think I think what's what's so good about that question is that I think the point is that in the first story we have no idea why, right? So in the the very first version of the Sifrei, there's no mention given at all of either what he did or why the Romans wanted to kill him. It, it seems totally irrelevant because I think. The, the main point of that first, the first version of the Supray is that he is willing to accept his fate. No, <laughs> he's willing to accept his fate no matter what, right? And therefore, we don't really care, right? Doesn't matter what he did or what he didn't do; it's irrelevant. But I think the, as the story gets retold, there's a sort of a discomfort with not knowing, sort of why he's being, you know, why is he being put to death? And I think that's why the Bosley tries to provide kind of two different tries to answer the question on two different plates, right? Why do the Romans want to kill him? And then also, you know, why do the... Why do the Romans want to kill him? So, yeah, so in the Bali, it's because he commits this crime of, of, of reciting God's name with all of its letters in a way that's inappropriate, right? You're not supposed to... Is he teaching people as well? So in the Bali, it's that he's pronouncing, right? He's pronouncing God's name in a way that's inappropriate. Yeah, I mean the story doesn't even make it totally clear which one, but in some manner he is he is illegitimately pronouncing God's full name. And then when the Bible tries to say, well, how could he do that? Didn't he know it was wrong? They say, well, he was trying to sort of teach it to other people, but even so, it was the wrong thing to do. And so, so he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's painted the Bible as, as being this kind of radical, right? Because he very explicitly rejects. Mm-hmm the theology that the Romans are put in power by God, right? So that, I mean, obviously, he's already violating Roman law. We know that already from the other versions. But this this very explicit dispute with Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, it's like, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma thinks, well, the Romans are here because God wants them. And I, he clearly thinks the opposite. I'm wondering if there's a connection between that and the pronouncing so, the name of God. So, I mean, that could be... I, I don't know that the story is presenting Hanina ben Tredion as being radical. I think the story is actually... I would read as the story is kind of implicitly criticizing Yossi ben Kisma, right? What kind of philosophy is it to say that because the Romans have done bad things, God wanted them to do it? Right? Sure. I think there's a sense that Yossi ben Kisma is being presented as kind of a... So, a just sort of, so it's more of a question as to what, what's the significance of that sin of pronouncing the letters... I think, I think they're looking for something that he could have done that would yeah. make it make it so that heaven would would want him to die, but it has to be something that's kind of rarefied and you know and motivated by piety. Yeah, and motivated by right. piety, right. Right. right? right, exactly. But, that's but yet, when he's, but yet he doesn't seem to recall that when he's asked. He's only he's only thinking about what did I do? What could I have done wrong? Oh, I mixed up some money. No, no. So that's a different version of the story, right? The the in in the uh, in the fourth version of the Bible, the mixing up of the money is actually is seen as being very very wonderful, right? He mixed up the money and therefore he was willing to give it all out to the poor people. And that's why that's why he's so great that he knows he's going into the world to come. It's only in the third version of the story that that's seen as, as a crime. 
So he's seen as a contemporary of of, um, of Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva, so probably around the first century. To the, you know, to the extent that we think of him as a real historical person, like that would be that's who he's described in the presence of as, of these other rabbis who were there. It's always a good question about like how much can we actually sort of derive in terms of history from you know from these texts. Um, okay, I think I'm being told that we should stop here. But if anybody has any other questions, I'll Thank you. Thank you.